This show is made possible by the fantastic support of our various partners. And I wanted to thank the Octopus Group. The Octopus Group is a collection of eight entrepreneurially minded businesses across financial services and energy, all founded on the one simple belief that people and the planet deserve better. They are intent on building a better tomorrow for future generations and are a certified B Corp, demonstrating they care as much about the impact of their investments as the returns they generate. I am proud that Octopus have backed this show since the second series and they are the reason why we are now able to put such a professional show together. To hear more about what they do, it is worth checking out previous episodes with the founders Chris Hewlett and Simon Rogerson or the CEO of their investments arm, Ruth Hancock. If you want to see how you could partner with us, go to our website at www.jobsofthefuture.co. And now, on to today's episode. Without further ado, please welcome Liz Truss to the stage. So first question that I wanted to ask is that there's a generation that are sort of 35 and under that have effectively only ever known a sort of permanent sense of crisis almost, whether it be the financial crash, Brexit, COVID, and now the news from the Bank of England yesterday about possibly one of the longest recessions we've ever seen and the tightest squeeze on living standards. What's your pitch going to be to win a fifth term? Well, the generation of people who have you know, grown up recently, the under 30s, first of all, I think that they are natural conservatives. They're more likely to have started up their own business than older generations. They're more likely to have a side hustle in whatever work they do. They're doing things alongside it. I think we've seen a real generation of self-starters who've had to cope with the difficulties of COVID. I've got two daughters aged 13 and 16. I know it's been tough for them being out of school, but I do think it's also created a certain kind of resilience. So I think we've got an incredibly talented generation coming through. And I think what we have to show as Conservatives is we're on their side. So one thing I would do is make sure people who rent are able to use their rental history to get a mortgage. So it's easier for young people to get on the housing ladder. I want to be able to hold universities to account better to make sure that they are providing face-to-face tuition uh, as well. And, And also, I want to look at some of the levels of interest in the student loan system to make sure that those students and ex-students are getting a fair deal. But fundamentally, what we need to do is we need to show people that there is hope and there is an optimistic future ahead of us. And as I said, we're brilliant at startups, but we need to be better at funding the scale-ups. So one of the things I would do is unleash more investment into our economy through reforming solvency too. I met some investors in the city this morning. They told me that if we get on and do that, we could release tens of billions. We can create the British version of Silicon Valley. We can create real opportunities. We have a talented generation of young people ready to take those opportunities on, but we need to get the growth and we need to, you know, I know there are difficult forecasts out there, but forecasts are not destiny. And what we shouldn't be doing is talking ourselves into a recession. We should be keeping, we should be keeping taxes low. You know, doing all of those things we can now do differently because we've left the EU 
and really show, show young people in particular the huge benefits of being a Conservative. And let's pick up on something specific there in terms of when it comes to the energy bills, because that is something that is, that is rising. And by the start of next year, you're up to the point where an average household could almost be spending 20% of their monthly income on energy. But they're people protected by the cap to an extent. Businesses aren't. And if you're going to be in creating a product this winter as a business, it's going to be really tough. What can we do to help those people? Well, first of all, reversing the national insurance raise will help business, and that's important. Keeping corporation tax low will help business and help keep us competitive. That's also important. But what I want to do is have more incentives for the oil and gas companies to use resources in the North Sea, to exploit more gas. I want us to frack in parts of the country that, where there's local support so that we can get so that we can get the energy security we need. And also what I want to see is fast forwarding of things like small modular nuclear reactors, nuclear projects. We need to be quicker at building projects. That is another thing that's too slow at the moment. And I would legislate to reform some of the rules that allow us to move forward on those things earlier. I just want to say one more thing about young people. I mean, people may know about me that I have a bit of a dubious past and that when I was a teenager, I was a member of the Liberal Democrats, but I, I, I sorry, sorry. Um, you know, we all made mistakes. We all made mistakes. We all had teenage misadventures, and that was mine. Some people, yeah, some people have, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I was in the Liberal Democrats. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But, but I became a Conservative because I met people who were like-minded, and I thought, I believe in what they're talking about. You know, and it was, for me, it was about personal freedom, the ability to shape your own life and shape your own destiny. And that's what motivated me to become a Conservative. So I think talking about our ideas is really important and you know, talking to other people and reaching out from the party. I think sometimes the Conservative Party is very, very good at raising money. And we should make the same kind of effort that we make raising money, reaching out to new people and convincing them about our ideas because that's what motivated me to switch at that age. And what was the moment that you decided to sort of step in to the arena, as it were? Because we've got a thousand members here this evening. Many will have served as local councillors and thought about filling out that kind of parliamentary candidates <laughs> form. What was the moment that thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this? Well, I was sort of, I was active in local association. I became chairman of the association, to be honest, because nobody else wanted to do the job. Uh, so. Obviously, it was a very highly, highly, it was, it was quite a small association. London, I became chairman, no one else wanted to do the job. And then, you know, I became a councillor. And at the same time, I, I was just really interested in, I was working in the oil and gas industry at the time. It was an interesting job, but I thought politics was something more. Politics could help shape our country's future. And I think that's what made me sign up uh, to get on the candidates list. And what is the, the, the governor of the Bank of England today talks about people that have left the workforce and actually this being one of the biggest domestic pressures that we've got on inflation aside from Russia and so on. What will you do to encourage those people back to the workforce? What can we do about that? Well, the, the governor is right. The reason we have an inflation problem is it's a supply side problem. There is not enough supply in our economy. That is why things like reducing national insurance will help contribute 
to fulfilling those supply needs. So it's not inflationary, it's actually going to help deal with inflationary pressures. Likewise, keeping corporation tax low will help new investment and help develop supply in the economy. Uh, on the point about people, you're absolutely right. There are 5 million people in Britain who are economically inactive. I think we used to call that being unemployed, uh, but we now call that economically inactive. What I would do is look at the incentives in the benefit system, but also make sure that we are providing opportunity, or rather the private sector is providing opportunities. So when I talk about investment zones, that is about using a conservative way, low taxes to attract businesses to an area. At the same time, let's get people who are uh, currently not in the workforce, encourage those people to apply for those jobs. So it's a combination of you know, incentives within the benefit system, as well as actively providing people with the skills and training they need to do those jobs. But it is a massive challenge for our country. I know there are shortage of skills in hospitality, in social care, in farming, and we really do need to work to get more people back into the workplace after COVID. You only need to go down Eastbourne Beach and see the amount of... Is that of where you've been, Jimmy? It is indeed. <laughs> well, I spent glad the afternoon I'm glad there. you've been having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> You're enjoying this really, Liz. Don't, don't tell me otherwise. If you were 22 in 2022, what sector do you think you'd be looking at? Because there's so much innovation happening out there, as you say. Where do you think you'd be looking to go? Look, I think there are all kinds of exciting exciting industry. I talked earlier about the local wine industry here, which is booming. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the fields are full of vineyards, which is fantastic to see. And I do, I do like wine. I think that'd be a good sector uh, to be part of. I think the tech industry is fantastic in Britain. But what we're brilliant at is the startups. And then there isn't enough funding coming through. So this is why I want to unlock that investment in the city into tech startups right across the country and also make sure we've all got the super fast broadband we need uh, to actually be able to run those types of businesses. But what more can we do to support fast growing startups, the scale up sector? Because we aren't as good as that. We are very good at starting businesses, but we're not as good as that growth side. What can we do on that side? So uh, this morning I met a group of funds uh, talking about exactly how do we unlock investment. And it is things like changing the solvency to rules, which are very, very risk averse on how much, how much capital is allowed to be released. Changing those rules would unlock huge levels of investment, which could go into helping Britain have a much faster growing tech sector, a much faster growing sort of scale up sector. So as you say, we're very good at the small businesses, but we need the next generation of Microsofts and Googles to be in Britain, not just to be in the United States. And that's, that's why I think it's so important to take advantage of these post-Brexit freedoms. And how can we get more share ownership is at its lowest level since the 1980s in terms of people holding these companies and having a stake in our future. How can we improve that? Well, I think that, that's a very good point. I think uh, one of the things we have been doing is working to make it easier to IPO in this country, to float your company uh, in, this, in this country. I think we as conservatives should be talking about share ownership and property ownership more. Sometimes I think we've been a bit afraid to talk about conservative principles, but we value a society where people have shares, where they own property, where they own a stake in the future. 
And I think that it's partly a communication problem, but it's also about making life easier for retail investors. Uh, using technology better, I think, is important as well. Interesting. We're going to come to audience questions in just a moment, so get ready to approach the people with the mics. But just before we do that, I wanted to ask you what your favourite podcast was, aside from Jimmy's Jobs, of course. Jimmy's Jobs is obviously my favourite podcast. I do actually like a podcast which is called Women with Balls. Uh, and I don't know if people, it's by Katie Balls of The Spectator. It's not any, um, any reference to... Uh, male genitalia or anything like that and um, yes I do think that's very good because it has a lot of punchy women on it. You'll have heard both the candidates talk about the importance of a growing economy and the role that scale-ups have to play in that and that's why I wanted to invite you to join me at Scale-Up Week 2022 which runs from the 19th until the 22nd of September. It's led by the Business Growth Fund one of the UK's most active investors in fast-growing companies. It's being hosted alongside the Scale-Up Institute and the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Throughout the week, leaders of fast-growth businesses, chief execs and policymakers will be discussing the crucial issues and opportunities facing scaling businesses in a decade of change. It's free to attend. All you need to do is Google Scale-Up Week 2022 to find out more and register. Right, so we're going to go to questions on that. Let's go down first here. So, yeah, just, we're just, just right there. I might just the, stand yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I have literally can... gone for the person right behind you, so that, with, with a Liz Banner, so. Could you hold it for me, please, right? Hi, I'm Tara Moore. I'm 37 and I'm significantly impaired. I'm also the epileptic uh, campaign manager. Considering there's a load, there, there are many of the population with an invisible disability or significant impairment, do you know what personal independence payments are? And how will your government ensure that we get meaningful employment? Well, thank you. Tara, first of all, I think what you are advocating for is incredibly important. To be honest, I don't know the level of personal independence payment. But what I can say to you is that what I want is to make it much easier for people in your position to get into jobs and also have the opportunity to set up your own businesses. And I know that the Department of Work and Pensions is working on how we do this better and how we help, you're, you're shaking your head, you're obviously not happy uh, with the Department of Work and Pensions. And what I'd want to do is talk to you about how can we help, uh, help deal with the issues that you face in getting employment? How can we make it better uh, in terms of the available opportunities, including being able to start up your own business? And I would want to do that as Prime Minister because my focus is unlocking the talent and potential of every single person in this country, and that includes your talent and potential. Thank you very much. Good evening. Um, I've got an eye for the next general election. The red wall voters were very, very important to us at the last election. What do you think you can do to retain the most of those votes going again to the Conservatives? 
Well, you're right about the red wall voters. They were incredibly important. And as somebody who comes from the north of England, I found it incredibly heartening that many people, you know, in places like West Yorkshire, uh, in places like uh, you know, County Durham, voted Conservative for the first time. And the reason they voted Conservative is they were fed up of years and years of Labour letting their area down. And they didn't want to be patronised. They didn't want handouts. They didn't necessarily want more government spending. What they want is opportunities, jobs and enterprise. And that's why it's so important that we help industries like the steel industry become more competitive internationally. It's why it's important that we get the investment into our manufacturing industries by reforming things like Solvency 2. And it's also important that we deliver what we said we would deliver in 2019. We promised new hospitals, we promised new railway lines, we promised new roads, we promised fibre. Uh, you're right, it does cost money, but there is money in the budget for it, but sometimes I'm afraid there's too much government bureaucracy in the way of getting it done. And what I can say to you is I am somebody who doesn't take no for an answer from Whitehall. I push things through, uh, regardless of some of the protests. And what I would make sure is that if elected as your Prime Minister, this autumn, I will put those projects on fast track. So we're delivering for people. And so by 2024, we have spades in the ground, in the red wall seats and in seats across England where we've made promises, including here in Eastbourne, uh, where I know we're promising a hospital, you know, I will make sure those things happen because people will see whether or not we deliver. And that's what's important. Thank you. you touched upon um, getting people back to work. Um, from my perspective, from the introduction of the new health and care bill, um, and with it now being introduced, especially with the introduction of you know, palliative care and end-of-life care. Um, it's a very specialist field, um, and having spoken to a lot of people, um, how do you intend to not only cover the chasm that there is within the, uh, within the care sector of specialist people, but how do you intend to retain them? That seems to be one of the biggest issues we've got. It's not actually employing people or getting people into those jobs but it's actually retaining them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as I said earlier on, I would make sure that the money that we have allocated to, to health and social care goes to social care, because I do think that's where some of the biggest issues are. And what we have at the moment is people in NHS hospital beds because there isn't enough space in social care. So by giving the money to local councils to fund social care, we'll also be freeing up space in the National Health Service. But you are right, you are right about the motivation of frontline people in the health service and in social care. And partly it's about funding. I understand that. I know there are issues about mileage rates for people in social care. I know there are issues about wages and we can help with the national insurance reverse, for example, on things like wages. But it is also about the respect people are treated with. It's about the level of centralised bureaucracy that we particularly experience in the NHS. So it's also about treating people with respect and making sure people are empowered on the front line to do their jobs so the jobs are as fulfilling as possible. I think that's very, very important. 
And how can we make sure that the NHS is able to keep pace with the private sector in terms of the different array of flexibility they're now able to offer in terms of working from home, etc.? People like teachers and nurses and doctors aren't going to have that flexibility. And actually, early on in their careers, they're sort of sent to all parts of the country with very little control. What can the government do to kind of enforce a bit of a more flexibility in that? Well, I have to say, there's quite a lot of the private sector who want more of their staff to be in the office as well. So I don't think it's just the public sector. I do think it is important that we get more people back into offices because we need to make sure our town centres and city centres thrive. But also you learn from other people when you're in work, when you're talking to each other. And I think whilst it worked to some extent during COVID, I certainly got Zoom fatigue. I know a lot of people in the civil service got Zoom fatigue. So I think we do need to try and encourage people to come into the office you know, more than they do at present. I think there is a case for more flexibility in terms of where people are um, allocated to within the National Health Service, for example. And I think there's a lot, there's a big case for more local control. At the moment, what I hear is people are frustrated by the level of central diktat they're frustrated by the number of levels of management above them. And I think by having more local control, you help empower people, you make jobs more fulfilling and rewarding, and you also get things done better. Because the people locally know much better than the people in Whitehall about what's going on and how to fix the problems. Liz, um, Vladimir Putin, must have been over the moon when Boris fell, and certainly the Ukrainians were very unhappy about it. What will you do to make Putin feel a little less smug and to put heart into the gallant Ukrainians? Well, you know, you are right that Boris Johnson is hugely respected in Ukraine. You know, there's both a street and a croissant named after him, and I don't think many, I don't think many international leaders have achieved that. And it is because of the leadership we've shown in Ukraine, not just in supporting the Ukrainians, but also standing up to Russia and calling out Putin, calling out Lavrov, calling out the appalling aggression that has characterised you know, Russia over the, last, over the last 10 to 15 years. And I know, having dealt directly with Russia, that they are concerned about the stance that we've taken, that they can see the leadership we've shown. And I can assure you, I will continue to do that. I will con continue to stand up to Putin, stand up to Lavrov, but also put, the, put our money where our mouth is. And it's important that it's not just about rhetoric, that it's also hard security the UK is investing in. That's why I intend to increase defence spending to 3% of GDP and also review our integrated review to make sure it's dealing with the threat that we now face on European shores, which is much worse than it was five or 10 years ago. Uh, thank you for all you've said so far. Uh, I'm in the hospitality sector, and I, want, I, I, I was listening to you say that you want to get some of that five million people back into work. I would like you to help me deal with the following cases. I was trying to employ people to help in my business, and on five occasions, I had people accepting jobs, and then were told that they're part-time jobs, they can't afford to take them because they would lose their benefits mm -hmm. more than I was able to pay yes. them. 
Thank you. Well, you, you make absolutely the right point. And this is my point about making the incentives in the benefit system work so people are better off when they take up jobs. And we made some changes because of COVID. COVID is now over. We now need to change the benefit system back. And we also need to more actively be encouraging people into work because it's not just damaging your business, uh, the ability to get people to work in it. It's also costing taxpayers money as well. So it's a win-win to change the system to help those people back into work. And I'm determined to do that. Hi, Liz. Um, I'm a teacher. I'm also a mum of a 13 and a 16-year-old. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about what you would do to help children recover from lost learning after COVID? Well, during COVID, we developed a large number of tutors across the country. And what I would want to use is use those tutors to help children catch up. I would also want to make sure we're dealing with the mental health issues resulting from COVID. I know how hard it was for young people to be isolated during that time when they should have been with their friends, they should have been at school. So what I would want is more mental health support in our schools to help teachers out as well. I think that's very important. I also want to support schools to offer more wraparound care for children. I think that's really important for working parents and it also helps children you know, get more of that social exposure, which is so important to their development. But uh, I know from having a 13 and six year old daughter, it is a, it's an exciting age, but it's also a challenging age. And I think one of the big problems parents face is mobile phones and social media and kids contacting each other and winding each other up on WhatsApp uh, is one of my, my, uh, my, my concerns, I can tell you about teenagers. Sounds like a Tory MP's WhatsApp group sometimes. But, uh, it's not as bad as that. <laughs> I don't think, I, I'm not sure teenage girls are as bad as Tory MPs. So I think that's... Uh, <laughs> that's being a bit strong. Gentlemen here. Mike Staples, chair of the uh, Conservative Policy Forum in Lewis and letter writer to the Telegraph. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with, with hindsight, the mathematical modelling that led to lockdown may have caused more harm than good. Um, we just heard some reference to it. Um, bef before restricting our right to heat our homes and drive our cars, will you critically examine the scientific groupthink for um, net zero? Well. Although, although I am a fan of mathematics, and in fact, one of the things I did as education minister was create the new big math GCSE that my daughter has just sat, which she's not particularly happy about because she was saying, mum, why did I have to sit all those extra papers? And it was basically down to me uh, when I was education minister. I do think sometimes we use mathematical models where they're not appropriate. And you know, the housing algorithm is a similar case where you know, it's a human decision whether or not to build houses in a local community. It shouldn't be down to an algorithm. So I think we've always got to be very careful to intermediate with our own thinking about what is right for our society. Uh, having been through the lockdowns, 
and seeing the experiences of other countries, I do think we went too far. And I would not want to have another lockdown, and no lockdown would happen under my leadership, I can assure you of that. But, but on, the subject of this, on the subject of net zero, we do need to transition to net zero, but I want to do so in a way that doesn't clobber households and doesn't clobber businesses. That's why I'd have immediate moratorium on the green energy levy, while we look at better ways of delivering net zero that are using private sector innovation and technology to deliver it. And at the meeting I had in the city this morning, you know, there are tens of billions of pounds chasing that green investment. That is what we should be doing. We should be looking at how we get that green investment into our economy at the same time as using gas as a transition fuel. Because I think that's going to be incredibly important in the run up to this winter, where Vladimir Putin is going to try and play games with, the Europe with European gas supply, is that we are using our own resources in the North Sea. Um, so you talk about the need to um, implement new laws to stop annoying protests. Being a student of Sussex University, I can very much empathise with that. Uh, we got a great display of it earlier were, were here today. Were some of your friends? Probably. Um, so I'm just concerned about how that's going to be done whilst balancing the crucial right to freedom of speech and freedom of expression. So I completely agree with freedom of speech and freedom of expression. What I think is wrong is when Extinction Rebellion activists glue themselves to trains and disrupt commuters who are going about their business. And likewise, you know, I am fine with peaceful protests, but you know, the, the situation we had in Parliament Square with a whole bunch of people camped in tents for week on e weeks on end is not the same as peaceful protest. So to me, you know, I'm a believer in freedom to do as you want, provided you don't harm others. That's the, that's the fundamental concept for me. But what I think we've got to a stage of in our society is where there is deliberately disruptive activity, which isn't just about peaceful protests, it's about trying to disrupt you know, democracy, trying to disrupt people's everyday lives. And I think that is a problem. So there's a, there's a balance to be struck, but one person's freedom should not mean that other people suffer misery. Liz, I had two quick final questions. There's been a lot of blue on blue in this um, leadership election, as there inevitably is going to be. But I wanted to know, what do you think is your opponent's greatest strength? So Rishi is somebody I've worked with in Cabinet. He's a very intelligent person. He's a very competent minister, and I would be very pleased that if I'm successful in this contest, if he would work, work with me in our team. And a final one. <laughs> and it's a very specific one and personal to me. You also have in um, common with him the fact that you are a parent to two daughters. And as we have recently welcomed our second daughter into the world, I wondered if you've got any advice on bringing up daughters in the 21st century. <laughs> So my number one piece of advice is delay as long as possible them getting a smartphone. That is, that is genuine advice to every parent because the minute they get their hands on it, 
it's an absolute nightmare. You know, I, I, I had to introduce this idea of a locked box to put their phone in, which was an old petty cash box because it was just being completely abused. So I think that's my number one piece of advice is keep them off the mobile phones as long as possible and try and work with other parents in a club to uh, stop them using peer pressure to, to get onto phones and social media. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Liz. That's been a brilliant Thank you. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways that we make this show possible is by the partners that we have that support us. They can be like today's, like the Octopus Group or the FinTech Alliance, but also we've done more consumer-facing brands like Primary Bid and Beer52. You can go to our website and check out more details at www.jobsofthefuture.co. The other way the show is made possible is by me going into organisations and talking about jobs of the future and the talent that is required to fill those jobs, how you retain them, how you attract them and how great teams are built that can achieve superb things that we hear about on this show. If you want to know more on that, drop us a line at hello at jobsofthefuture.co. We always love hearing from our listeners 